Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Welcome back, everybody. We're rounding the corner now and hitting the home stretch of the semester. We've spent a lot of time talking about how the Bill of Rights came to be applied against the states and about the constitutional transformation affected by the 14th Amendment. That amendment, ratified in 1868, made clear that everyone born in the United States is a citizen of the United States and the state where they reside, and then put new restrictions on state governments. No state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizenship, deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. After the slaughterhouse cases in 1873, you'll remember the Privileges or Immunities Clause had a pretty limited application. It's essentially been a dead letter in constitutional law. Through the doctrines of incorporation and substantive due process, though, the Due Process Clause has become extremely important. It's through its interpretation of the Due Process Clause that the court has applied the Bill of Rights to the states, and it's through its interpretation of the Due Process Clause that the court has developed the jurisprudence of privacy and liberty that led to its landmark abortion decision in Roe v. Wade and to the line of cases leading to Obergefell v. Hodges, the 2015 case that required states to recognize same-sex marriage. Love them or hate them, those decisions have had a huge impact on American constitutional government and politics over the last half century. Over the next few weeks, we're turning our attention to the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. That clause says that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the law. The interpretive question for us is what that means exactly. What does it mean to deny someone the equal protection of the law? The challenge is that the law treats people differently for all sorts of reasons. You have to be 18 to vote, 21 to drink. You have to pay out-of-state tuition if you live out-of-state, but in-state tuition if you live in-state. You pay a higher percentage of taxes on income if you're in a higher income tax bracket. The question, and I don't think this is really oversimplifying it too much, is whether a discrimination or distinction in the law is justified. As the Supreme Court's doctrine on this develops over time, they end up saying that the question of whether a discrimination in the law is unconstitutional hinges ultimately on whether the legal distinction is reasonable. Later, they say it depends on whether some distinction is benign or invidious, which is like saying whether it's good or bad, just or unjust. To say that legal distinctions based on race or sex or age or income or some other characteristic deny someone the equal protection of the law is to say that characteristic is relevant to the general purposes of the law. And so it's arbitrary, unreasonable, and invidious. So it might be reasonable to give lesser sentences for crimes committed by minors and to exclude minors for serving on juries, for example. We think it's reasonable to discriminate based on age in those circumstances. But we might also think it's unreasonable to give lesser sentences for crimes committed by people of a certain race or to exclude people of a certain race from serving on juries. The former would be reasonable and benign, the latter unreasonable and invidious. And that does take us then to the core historical purpose of the Equal Protection Clause, to provide equal protection of the law regardless 
of race or color, and especially equal protection of the law for those people who had been enslaved and who were now free by the terms of the 13th Amendment, which had abolished slavery and involuntary servitude just three years before the 14th Amendment was ratified. Recall here the Civil Rights Act of 1866. In that act, Congress said that everyone born in the United States is a citizen of the United States and that such citizens of every race and color shall have the same right in every state and territory in the United States to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to the full and equal benefit of laws and proceedings for the security of person and property as is enjoyed by white citizens, and shall be subject to like punishment, pains, and penalties, and to none other, any law, statute, ordinance, regulation, or custom to the contrary notwithstanding. The 14th Amendment then makes a subtle but important change from the language of the Civil Rights Act. Equal protection is not something for citizens only, but for all persons. Citizen or not, you deserve the equal protection of the law. There is some other important history here. The 13th Amendment said that slavery and involuntary servitude shall not exist except as punishment for crime. The so-called black codes of the states in the Deep South then exploited that provision to essentially re-enslave people in the years following the 13th Amendment's passage. An 1865 law passed in Mississippi, for example, contained a provision making it a crime for black people to be unemployed or to associate with white people, quote, on terms of equality. If someone couldn't pay the fine imposed for violating the law, the sheriff would then hire that person out for labor to anyone who would pay the fine. For violating the law against adultery or fornication between white and black people, whites received a larger fine and a larger possibility of jail time. But the smaller fine imposed on the freedmen made it cheaper for somebody to pay that fine on their behalf in exchange for their involuntary servitude. Think about that. Someone who had been enslaved was now free according to a new constitutional amendment. But that person owns no property. They've been denied an education. In many instances, they have no prospects for work other than working for the person who had enslaved them. And if they can't prove that they're employed, they'll be arrested. If arrested, they'll have to pay a fine, but they have very little property and no money to pay the fine with. Since they're unable to pay the fine, they're then hired out by the sheriff against their will to labor for someone else. It was simply slavery by another name. And so the Civil Rights Act in 1866 and the 14th Amendment in 1868 are aimed directly at laws like that. They're designed to ensure that everyone has the full and equal enjoyment of the law and that everyone shall be subject to like punishment, pains, and penalties, and to none other, as the Civil Rights Act worded it. And yet even here we have this interpretive problem. There's a kind of formal equality that we could achieve by making white and black people subject to the same punishments, pains, and penalties for crime. That's certainly better than the black codes of the states like Mississippi, which didn't even aspire to formal equal treatment. But what if the law mandates segregation by race and then inflicts the same criminal punishment for anyone who violates the segregation ordinance? doesn't matter what your race is. If you associate with or marry or assemble together with someone of a different race, you'll be found in violation of the law. By law, businesses and schools and public accommodations will be segregated by race, with everybody subject to the same penalty for violation. Is that technically consistent with the Equal Protection Clause? This is often what the law demanded in practice, and that question was at issue in the famous or infamous case of Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. Homer Plessy, like many in Louisiana, had ancestors who were French and Haitian settlers and refugees. 
and Louisiana at the time had a law that required rail cars to provide, quote, separate but equal accommodations for passengers and to segregate the rail cars by race. And in order to create a test case challenging that law, Homer Plessy worked with a civil rights group called the Citizens Committee to stage a violation of the law and then to ensure that he was arrested, tried, and convicted for violating Louisiana's Separate Car Act. Everything went according to their plan except for a crucial detail. They lost their case at the United States Supreme Court. In the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, the court upheld the law and said that the separate but equal provision did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. The object of the 14th Amendment, the court said in Plessy, was undoubtedly to enforce the absolute equality of the two races before the law, But, in the nature of things, it could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or to enforce social, as distinguished from political, equality, or a commingling of the two races upon terms unsatisfactory to either, laws permitting and even requiring their separation in places where they're liable to be brought into contact do not necessarily imply the inferiority of either race to the other, and have been generally, if not universally, recognized as within the competency of the state legislatures in the exercise of their police powers. Segregation, the court was saying, was a reasonable policy for state governments to pursue and was not in conflict with the Equal Protection Clause. As proof, the court pointed to longstanding laws outlawing interracial marriage and segregating public schools, including a law that segregated schools in Washington, D.C. at the very same time that Congress proposed the 14th Amendment. There was no thought that by doing so they were integrating the D.C. schools, which were under the exclusive jurisdiction of Congress, and those schools remained segregated even after the 14th Amendment was ratified. And then, in a line that became extremely important for future litigation, the court said that the underlying fallacy of Plessy's argument was, quote, the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamped the colored race with a badge of inferiority. Keep that line in mind as we turn to the decision in Brown v. Board of Education 58 years after Plessy. But also keep in mind the celebrated dissent in Plessy by Justice John Marshall Harlan. He wrote in his dissent that the Constitution of the United States does not, I think, permit any public authority to know the race of those entitled to be protected in the enjoyment of such rights. In view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all are equal before the law. That idea of a colorblind Constitution will be important for us in the coming weeks as we consider the debate over the legacy and application of Brown v. Board of Education. That case, Brown v. Board, consolidated several others in a nationwide challenge to the practice of segregating public schools on the basis of race. And it came after a long and successful litigation strategy by the NAACP to challenge the practice of racial segregation in higher education. If separate but equal was the standard, then the NAACP strategy was to demonstrate that things were far from equal in higher education, and that was easy to do, and obvious to anyone who looked. Brown then pushed that argument to the primary and secondary level. With Plessy versus Ferguson as its precedent, those challenging segregation in public schools said separate is not equal. But then they also directly addressed that line in Plessy that the fallacy of Homer Plessy's argument was the assumption that the forced separation of the races stamped one race with a badge of inferiority. A recent sociological study had been published in 1950 that purported to show that segregation by race, 
irrespective of whether tangible factors such as funding and textbooks and teacher salaries were actually equal, created a sense of superiority in the white students and a sense of inferiority in the black students. Segregation was a tool of white supremacy, serving only to reinforce racial prejudices, and this regardless of whether everything else was actually equal, which of course it never was. The Supreme Court then surveys all of this, offers a history of public education in the United States, describes this sociological study, and concludes, quote, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Listen to this excerpt from the PBS documentary, The Supreme Court, which includes an interview with one of those NAACP attorneys, Robert Carter. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we unanimously hold that the plaintiffs are deprived of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Plessy B. Ferguson in education is no more, and in practice, Plessy B. Ferguson itself is no more. The era of Jim Crow, constitutionally speaking, is over. This was precisely what we urged them, almost in that language. So it was gratifying to have the, the opinion come down almost in the language of the argument that we made to them. That was far from the end of the story, though. In a follow-up case, the Supreme Court said that schools must comply with all deliberate speed a phrase that federal district court judges in the South used to delay court enforcement. Some state executives actively worked to block integration. President Eisenhower even had to bring up the National Guard to integrate Little Rock High School in Arkansas. And if you look at data about the percentage of students who actually attended integrated public schools in the years after 1954, that number remains virtually unchanged for a decade really until Congress provided incentives for desegregation in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Two other things to keep in mind. The decision in Brown was explicitly limited to public education, and it didn't officially overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. The court said that in the field of public education, separate is inherently unequal. But whether separate was inherently unequal, therefore unconstitutional, in other areas of public life was still an open question. The civil rights protests of the 1950s and 1960s pushed that question and led ultimately to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And it was the Civil Rights Act more than Brown versus Board of Education that finally moved the needle on desegregation. The passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 takes us to another controversy about the 14th Amendment. What it says or doesn't say about private rather than public and state-sponsored acts of discrimination. That's a challenge we'll pick up on Thursday with the Civil Rights Act of 1875 and the civil rights cases in 1883.